Republican presidential primary is in full swing, Donald Trump's been indicted again, and many are wondering what it means to be a conservative in America today. To help us navigate the waters of the conservative political movement, author, journalist, and thinker Matt Continetti. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. Jewish Insiders Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we have a great guest in line today, someone I've known in Washington for probably 20 years or so, Uh, a, a big thinker on the right, the name of his most recent book, Matthew Cottonetti, a senior fellow and the inaugural Patrick and Charlene Neal Chair in American Prosperity at the American Enterprise Institute, where his work is focused on American political thought and history, with a particular focus on the development of the Republican Party and the American conservative movement in the 20th century, a prominent journalist, analyst, author, intellectual historian of the right, Mr. Cottonetti, was the founding editor and the editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon, Previously, he was opinion editor at the Weekly Standard. Jared, uh, today we're doing the right. I would love to do another one on the left pretty soon. But for now, let's welcome Matt to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rich. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, There is a lot to sort out in national politics today, especially on the Republican side and the conservative movement. But let's just start with the big elephant in the elephant which is, of course, Donald Trump's indictment. Uh, And yet, like his last indictment at the state level in New York, again, does not seem to bother anyone in the Republican primary polling. In fact, maybe improving Donald Trump's numbers here, a lot of members of Congress coming to his defense. Uh, Help us out here. What, What is going on in this world of Republican conservative domain when it comes to the former president who is running to be president again? Sure. Uh, well, I, I think I'd start taking a slightly different view of the response to Trump's indictment. Um, and I think that that response on the part of many Republicans is slightly different than their response to the Bragg indictment uh, in New York a couple of months ago. There, there's no question pretty much every conservative, uh, every Republican viewed the Bragg indictment over the payments to Stormy Daniels as a reach, as a pretty weak case uh, by a clearly political uh, prosecutor in New York City. And so uh, Republicans and conservatives rallied around Trump. He saw a boost in the polls. He saw a lot of fundraising. And that kind of carried him through the spring. So with this indictment, the players are different. Uh, Jack Smith is uh, a career prosecutor, uh, special counsel. Um, It's coming federal charges. And anyone who reads the indictment uh, with an open mind uh, and closely 
sees that it contains a lot of evidence, and, including recordings of Trump himself, um, and that the documents in question were of a fairly serious nature. So while there was an initial rallying behind Trump, um, you've seen recently a few Republicans begin to create some space between themselves and the former president. I'm thinking of Nikki Haley, former Vice President Mike Pence, Senator Tim Scott. These are Trump's rivals in the uh, race for the Republican nomination. They're beginning to say that the charges against him are pretty serious. Now, they also talk about a politicized Justice Department. Some say that they'd be inclined to pardon Trump, but it's a slightly different reaction than what we saw with New York. And in fact, it may be that the Republicans uh, become uh, more open to criticizing Trump over the the federal indictment in the months ahead. We just don't know. So I'll talk though for a second about why people rally to Trump. And that's because... um, Many Republicans uh, distrust American institutions. They see a double standard of justice. They wonder what happened to the special counsel that Merrick Garland appointed to look into Joe Biden's classified documents that were found at his home and and his D.C. office dating back to his time as vice president. They wonder why no special counsel has been appointed to look at the many different investigations surrounding Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden's taxes, Hunter Biden's uh, guns, Hunter Biden's businesses. Um, They view the media as uh, inherently corrupt. And so when they look at the world, they see um, all of the institutions they view to be captured by progressive liberals, the progressive left, going after Trump. And so they believe these Republicans and conservatives believe that uh, Trump needs to be defended uh, because he's these, this, uh, the target, but also the best um, opponent of what they view to be a corrupt system. Now, obviously, Jared disagrees with, with a lot of those, with those premises, but, but you're, you're representing what the views are of those that are, that are rallying to, to the former president. Yeah. And I guess just as a follow-up, and I promise we won't spend the whole time talking about president Trump because we want to kind of dig deeper, but what do you make of multiple Republican senators threatening to hold all DOJ nominations over this prosecution? I mean, isn't the point of a special counsel to not have this, isn't that just kind of end up this place or it's just so raw. And as you alluded to a moment ago, it's the distrust so deep of the Justice Department that it's the only remedy these senators feel like they have left? Or is it just politics? Uh, Can I say all of the above? What is interesting about J.D. Vance's announcement that he's going to hold the DOJ nominees is typically you only see that sort of um, rallying to Trump in the House. So the House is extremely Trumpy. House Republicans extremely Trumpy, and you know now there's discussion by Jim Jordan, the head of the House Judiciary Committee, and also the Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. That you know he wants to find a way to either defund Jack Smith, that he's the special counsel, defund his office, or to drag him in front of Congress to discuss what I don't know. I mean, 
the indictment's there. You know, you can read it, you can download it. But with J.D. Vance, now he's in the Senate, which has been historically less Trumpy, and yet he's making a uh, extraordinary move here to just block DOJ appointees over this indictment, and it it piggybacks on Senator Tuberville's uh, decision to block um, military promotions over uh, abortion on military bases. So you see the Senate Republicans coming to resemble the more anti-systemic, you know, um, uh, the more kind of firebrand uh, House Republicans. That's a that's a new development. It's I mean it's a sign of Trump's hold over the Republican Party. Um, I of course disagree with uh, uh, Vance, and he you know, and, and I think it's a way to show his support for Trump. Um, get you know Trump endorsed him, uh, which arguably helped him in the primary, uh, and now he's there in the Senate representing Ohio, and uh, I, this is a way of. Um, showing himself uh, in line with um, his allies and with a major current in the Republican Party. I think J.D. Vance has said that, you know, the three names uh, that he mentions on the campaign trail or at uh, political appearances which get the most response and the most uh, applause are Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Tucker Carlson. And uh, that's, that's your Republican Party right there. I, I want to tap into that a little more and go deeper and bring your 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 last your last book into this and the various camps that exist inside today's conservative movement and who they are, what they are, what it even means to be conservative. But um, I do want to just pick back up on on the statement you made about the skepticism, lack of trust, uh, anger at various American institutions, distrust of the FBI, distrust of DOJ, distrust of the court systems, distrust of the media. And my question is, you're obviously a historian in this in this view, especially in the last century of Republicans, conservatives. Is this a phenomenon that is Trump born? Is this a chicken and egg that Donald Trump told his base and supporters when, when in running for president, when as president, that these are the people to distrust and therefore is a sort of a self-fulfilling cycle now that, of course, they, that, that continues. And, of course, he's now victimized by the people who he told everyone to distrust. Or is this a strain within conservatism, within Republican Party that goes back pre-Trump in any, in any significant way historically? Yeah, I, I think it's main, mainly the latter, though Trump has um, exploited it. Um, there's, you know, it's not just conservatives or Republicans. There's a long-standing suspicion of central authority in the American political tradition, in our American political culture. Um, Americans don't like intrusive government, especially in the intrusive federal government. You can look at conservative criticism of the FBI stretching back basically ever since J. Edgar Hoover left the job of FBI director. And you can see con conservatives opposing uh, the FBI's behavior uh, or the ATF's behavior during the Waco standoff. You can see it uh, over the Ruby Ridge incident. You can see it 
over the Elian Gonzalez uh, incident, 2000. I mean, there's many, many examples. Um, media, distrust of media, I mean, that that's ancient history for the conservatives. Um, but William F. Buckley Jr. kind of throws shade on media bias in the editorial that launched the National Review in 1955. Conservative media criticism became much more pronounced after Barry Goldwater lost the 1964 presidential election. You know, in 1992, when George H.W. Bush was running for election, there were bumper stickers that said, uh, annoy, uh, annoy the media, vote Bush. Um, so we found in 2012, Newt Gingrich kind of was uh, at the back of the pack in, in the primary polls, but shot toward the top when he started lambasting the media to anchors' faces <laughs> at Republican debates. So, so there's not much trust in the FBI, there's not much trust in the media. One change has been the attitude toward business. Typically, uh, Republicans and conservatives have had a very positive view of business, I would say especially small business. And while they continue to look favorably on, fall, on small businesses and on entrepreneurs, they have become very antagonistic toward big business because they now see it as another institution that has been captured and corrupted by the progressive left. So these are kind of longer trends, but what Trump does, and that makes him unique, is he wants to delegitimize every competing institution and tell his supporters that the only place they can put their trust in is Donald Trump. And so he has kind of exploited these long-running tendencies and uh, exacerbated them uh, in order to increase his personal power over uh, the conservative movement and uh, the Republican Party. I have sort of one observation only and then a question. The observation being, you know, as somebody who's left of center, who lives in Brooklyn, what would be probably one of the most left-leaning congressional districts this side of the Mississippi, everything you just said about the distrust of the institutions and companies and the FBI and the ATF is everything I hear on the far left also. You know, they don't trust any of these institutions and they think that, you know, the media is controlled by a bunch of old rich white guys and not reflective of the community at large. But I guess my question is, if Donald Trump is peddling this like, hey, the only person you can trust is me, doesn't that, you know, for conservatives and really for all Americans, doesn't that make us just like everybody else? And, you know, not a first world democracy where we have institutions. Isn't that the one of the only things that sort of separates us from lots of other people and lots of other countries that we're sending peacekeeping forces to on occasion when some kind of strife breaks out? I mean, that's not a Republican or a Democratic point of view. That's like an existential question. And then I wanted to deeper into that like the difference, the different camps within the conservative movement today. But as a threshold question and a threshold statement, that scares me. Well, I mean, first on uh, the resemblance of some of these attitudes uh, on the right with the left, I, I do think that there's something to the horseshoe theory of politics, which is as you get further from the center, the extremes tend to bend toward one another. And the clearest example of that in recent days has been RFK Jr. and the ecstatic response to his blend of conspiracy theory and uh, populism from 
the Make America Great Again movement um, online. Um, on Trump and American exceptionalism, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Trump doesn't believe in American exceptionalism. Uh, Barack Obama didn't really either. Trump doesn't, especially. Um, he's, you know, he's been asked about, say, the Tiananmen Square massacre. He thought Deng Xiaoping did the right thing. Uh, when asked uh, by Joe Scarborough back in 2015 about why he was so kind of sympathetic toward Vladimir Putin when Putin has this record of murder of his political opponents. Trump is like, you don't think we don't kill people? What's What makes us so different, right? He's established a moral equivalence that typically the American right has detested. Um, but because he won the Republican nomination in 2016 and became the president in 2016 and governed in a weird way, whereas Many of his actions actually were very uh, in line with the longstanding agenda and principles of American conservatism, even if his personality often rubbed against it. Um, he remains the central figure on, on the American right, and to a large degree in American politics, too. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? It's extraordinary that this is now going to be uh, entering the eighth year that this man has been the dominant story in American politics. And he's only been president for four of those years. <laughs> I want to, I want to zoom back out and something Jared touched on last. And, th and that is, you know, in your book, uh, your latest book, the right, uh, you, you talk about a lot of different camps that now exist that, that frankly I had never heard of before, the last few years and some of them, by the way, I still have never heard of. Uh, but you know, when I was growing up, like, yeah, there was like a Pat Buchanan wing I was aware of versus a more traditional wing. And I remember 92 and 96 and the, some of those debates of, you know, isolationism versus internationalism in this post cold war era. And, you know, nine 11 certainly made it difficult to have, any real camp except for Ron Paul on the floor of the house uh, it being an alternative, but you know, whether it's, whether it's just the Obama era or whatever it is, you talk about an alt-right libertarians, reformacons, never Trumpers, Claire monsters, traditionalists, Catholics, paleos, neocons, others. Who are all these people? What, what, if you were like doing like a pie chart right now of conservatism today in America, what does the pie chart look like? Yeah, well, I mean, it's divvied up into a lot of different pieces um, and uh, it would take a long time to go through all of the different flavors. Of let's go, let's go with the major slices that I'm going to get. Yeah, uh, so that's uh, I'll be happy to do that. Um, you know, I think the first thing to do is to distinguish between real politics like we see in uh, institutions and elections and campaigns, and then the intellectual debates that increasingly take place online. And so a lot of the real nitty gritty uh, you might find online, but it's not necessarily represented in politics. And so if you just look at the Republican Party today, say, you see uh, it 
uh, dominated by um, the attitudes and positions associated with uh, MAGA, with with Donald Trump. Um, populist, which is to say anti-liberal elite, uh, anti-expert, um, kind of f- what we call folk libertarian, you know, get the government off our backs, but also don't mess up with the benefits that we've been promised. Um, you see a real preference for cultural battles over uh, economic policy. So a real interest in fighting the culture war in all its dimensions, you know, Bud Light boycott, uh, Target boycott, um, taking precedence over, say, uh, getting into the details of how Republicans will fight inflation. Um, There's the America first sentiment the idea that America should not be um, going overseas looking for fights, uh, especially in Europe, that we should restrain uh, ourselves uh, in supporting Ukraine. Um, if you just look at the Republican Party. I mean, that that Ukraine position, it's basically 50-50 now, you know, I mean, at best, um, and which is not where it was would have been. 10 years ago. Um, and then uh, socially conservative, you know. Uh, so so that's kind of what the Republican Party looks like now. And it's uh, to the degree that there's another camp, um, it's one that is kind of the, old, the, the remnants of kind of Bush Republicanism, um, leery of culture war, uh, wanting to stress the economy um, and more inclined to support America's role as a global leader. I'm curious, you, you call it Bush Republicanism. I, I've always sort of thought of it as as Reaganism in, in the traditional conservative sense. But in, in some ways, I've, I've seen that MAGA crowd take Bush uh, take the Iraq war and use that as the weapon to just say anybody who espouses this traditional conservative uh, vision economically, national security wise defense, the way Reagan did, you're just a neocon. You're a Bush neocon. Uh, it, it, is that, do you see that the same way? I mean, is it, it or, or do you think that whatever Reaganism was doesn't even exist in either camp at the moment? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, question. Um, I think that uh, I said the Bush um, because he was the previous Republican president to Trump. Um, And a lot of the reaction against the so-called Republican establishment stemmed from Bush's decision to embrace the bank bailout. Um, during the global financial crisis. And also, you know, though Bush campaigned uh, for a federal marriage amendment in 2004 to uh, essentially ban same-sex marriage, he was kind of a reluctant crusader on that uh, issue. And in fact, for most of his presidency did not really stress social cultural issues all that much. 
So uh, I, I, that's why I, I would say Bush. Uh, right, it was much, right, right, much more of the House Republicans at the time sort of for, forcing those issues off and on. Right, him. and if you think about the Terry Schiavo right. uh, episode, that would kind of bubbled up the through the House stem of Stem cells, I remember the whole, all yeah, those Stem questions. cells, yes, in fact, stem cells, he annoyed some people on the social conservative side because he didn't stop all the lines of um, of research into um, stem cells. So, so uh, Reagan, um, to the degree, yeah, the Reaganite foreign policy, I think, does share significant overlap with the Bush foreign policy. Um, though it should be said that Reagan only rarely used military force and um, then in a manner, you know, where he was, you know, we invaded Grenada to <laughs> over overthrow the one of the greatest Marxist scenes rebels. of the movie anger management for those who have seen it. Yeah, it's you know, Grenada is not necessarily, you know, toppling the Taliban or uh, overthrowing Saddam and staying there. Um, so there are some differences there. But the overall idea that America should be the global leader and that America and America has a responsibility to protect and advance freedom and democracy in the world. That is, I think, shared by both Reagan and Bush, and then it's opposed by the Trump Republicans um, who are ascendant uh, today. So where this Reaganism, I do think many people, you can see it in the polls, many Republicans still look fondly upon Ronald Reagan. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the full spectrum nature of Ronald Reagan's politics, you know, and that he didn't really shy away from conservatism in any sphere, social, cultural, economic, foreign policy, judicial, um, wasn't, wasn't totally um, visible in the W administration. And um, it's, it's hard to see it in many places in the Republican Party today. So, Matt, let me ask you about Ukraine and sort of where this nets out for conservatives today. You know, you're hearing a lot of chatter sort of on the international scene that the Ukrainians really need to show some ground or gain some ground in their spring offensive, because if Republicans get to the White House, absent some kind of significant gains in the conflict, Republicans and conservatives just don't have the appetite to continue to support Ukraine like they have. You think that that view holds water? Where do you think it comes from? Well, um, where it comes from, uh, it, you know, Rich mentioned there's just a longstanding um, part of the conservative movement in the Republican Party that is opposed to foreign intervention and to foreign entanglements. Um, spent most of the years between 1952 and uh, 20. 15 on the sidelines, but is now at, in on the field. Um, and so that idea that America should not, you know, um, assist countries and should only look out for itself uh, is longstanding. And it becomes kind of complicated by the fact that we are under a democratic president at the moment. And so there's some negative partisanship involved. If Joe Biden is for something, most Republicans think that they have to be against it. Um, there's also the fact that it's Ukraine and the right has, uh, parts of the right has have had this strange new respect for Vladimir Putin over the past decade. 
And so they're almost inclined to look at the world through Putin's eyes. Um, and so that contributes to some of it. Um, and then there's also the fact that we're in the middle of uh, an inflationary period. People are thinking about reigning in government spending. And so this is why you have someone like Speaker Kevin McCarthy say, no blank checks for Ukraine. And why they might be reluctant to authorize uh, further assistance. Um, I would say, though, the Senate Republicans uh, are, again, much more pro-Ukraine uh, than the House Republicans. And even the House Republicans, there's a weird divergence between some of the Freedom Caucus crowd and then some of the committee chairmen um, who are much more pro-American leadership and pro-Ukraine assistance. So I'd say it, it stems from a variety of sources. And I don't really know what will happen after this offensive culminates. Um, it, you would it might be harder to pass further assistance to Ukraine, but uh, I think you could still see a path for it. Matt, you talk, you brought up uh, Speaker McCarthy, and obviously uh, plenty of ink spilled uh, on his speakership so far in the state of the House GOP and the various factions. Uh, now just coming through the debt limit agreement and controversy uh, over, over that deal. How do you sort of assess uh, the speaker uh, how do you look at the state of, of the House Republican caucus and uh, and where it's going? Well, I think Kevin McCarthy's been underestimated throughout his career. Um, I think he had a, uh, a good moment uh, negotiating a deal with Biden to lift the debt ceiling in exchange for spending reforms. Um, he's had to deal with some of the blowback from uh, parts of his conference uh, over that deal. But I think that McCarthy uh, will follow his principle of concede to lead in order to manage that part of the uh, conference. Um, I think Kevin McCarthy has a superpower and that is he actually wants to be speaker, you know, and he just wants to be speaker. He doesn't want to transform American civilization from the speaker's dais like Newt Gingrich did. Um, he doesn't want to solve all of America's budget problems like Paul Ryan did. And of course, Paul Ryan never really wanted the job to begin with. McCarthy wants to be speaker and he wants a Republican majority. And in fact, he recruited most of the members of that Republican majority. So he doesn't have John Boehner's problem of actually despising many of the Republicans that he was leading. I mean, Boehner was a figure of this Bush party who becomes speaker in the Tea Party age. And so he takes the gavel in 2011. He looks around and he says to himself, who are these people? You know, and if you read his biography, his memoir, John Boehner's memoir, um, it's actually very entertaining uh, because he doesn't hide his contempt for his fellow Republicans. But of course, he was supposed to be in charge of them. So McCarthy doesn't have that problem. And uh, so it's it's an oddity that, you know, Republicans have basically split control of the Congress with Democrats since the end of the Cold War. And yet this is the first time we've had a Republican speaker who actually wants his job and likes his members. 
you know. So uh, I, I believe he'll continue to be underestimated. Um, and, you know, it's not, he's not going to please everybody. Uh, that's because he's not an ideologue. He's, he's a classic politician. But uh, that does, I think that, that classic politician has made for uh, effective and long-lasting speakers in the past. Of course, we'll see. Then the next big challenge on McCarthy's plate uh, will be um, the spending bills uh, in September and whether we have a government shutdown or not. Now, let me ask you, you know, we talked a lot about the isolationist tendencies in the conservative movement broadly. Israel doesn't seem to be affected writ large by this. What do you make of that? And do you think it's subject to change? Yeah, it's a great question. Israel is a unifying force on the right today. Um, but I, th- I worry whether that consensus is uh, endangered. Um, th- there's no question that uh, Republican members are uh, going to support Israel. They're going to support further assistance to Israel. They're going to support Israel when it has to take operations uh, against Hamas or against uh, its adversary, Iran. Um, but I, I wonder about the, the future of the relationship um, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is uh, just personal. So Trump, I don't think, has forgiven Bibi for making a congratulatory call to Joe Biden um, after the 2020 election. And with Trump, everything is personal. And so if Trump were to get back into the White House and if Bibi were the prime minister in 2025, I don't know how that relationship would be affected. Um, Another reason uh, I I think about the relationship is changing nature of the Republican coalition. Um, Republicans are uh, becoming less churched uh, than they have been in the past still heavily influenced by evangelical Christianity, uh, which in the main is very supportive of Israel. But Trump has brought in new constituencies into the Republican Party that just, they, they, you know, they call them, they say they're Christian, but they don't really belong to church. They probably don't go to church all that often. The religiosity might not be there. And if it's not there, then that means that that connection to Israel might not be there either. And also there's some changing dynamics within the evangelical Christian community, uh, within the religious community um, that I've noticed seem to be pushing that community toward uh, a more Palestinian, uh, pro-Palestinian stance. Uh, It's still very um, uh, minor at this point, uh, but it could develop further. but uh, in the in the main, I I continue to see the Republican Party as uh, basically the party of defending Israel and, and supporting Israel, especially when Israel is threatened. Matt, maybe give our listeners a little bit of insight into you personally. Um, how, how did you come to make yourself uh, a historian? The the predominant thought leader of modern conservatism uh you know what 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 made you into who you are 
Well, uh, Rich, I don't know how long you have. Uh, and please lie down. Uh, that, and please lie down. I hope, yeah, I, I don't know if you charge by the hour or not, you know, uh, or if Medicare will reimburse this um, or my health insurance company. Uh, I don't know. You know, this is my 20th year in Washington. Um, so 20 years ago, I graduated from Columbia and came to Washington to work at the Weekly Standard magazine. And I've been covering politics ever since. And um, as part of my kind of um, practice of, of trying to improve my own work, I spent a lot of time reading old journalism, um, all the back issues of the Weekly Standard, all the back issues of the National Review, back issues of the New Republic. I just read a lot. And the more I read, uh, the more I became interested, not only in the past, um, and of course I was a history major in college, so I was always, I'm always interested in the past, but really interested in kind of the recent past, the 20th century, um, as the background to today. Uh, but also the fact that most people don't know much about the recent past. Most people don't know what was going on during the Reagan administration. Um, most young people in college today probably don't know a whole lot about what was going on during the W administration. Um, and so I feel a need to communicate that to people, to teach people about American history, because um, I, I think that American history or history in general is really the only map we have to where we are. Um, and I also think as a, I'm a conservative by temperament and by politics. And so uh, it seems to me a ridiculous notion that you can be a conservative without an appreciation of the past, because at the root of conservatism is gratitude for the past and gratitude for the given, what you're given, um, and a desire to preserve it and also to build on what's best in it. Um, so that's how I kind of fell into writing about the great figures in the intellectual movement of conservatism and out of that writing uh, came my book. And also, it out of it, you know, the book is also kind of a response to the Trump era. It's called The Right. It's out in paperback now. It's with a new afterword called The Trump Era. And I think uh, I wouldn't have written the, the book or I wouldn't have written the same book had the rise of Donald Trump not forced me to kind of think critically about the conservative movement and uh, its weaknesses, its strengths, its divisions, um, and uh, and how it ended up where it did. So I buy all that. I could just never really wrap my head around people who I respect and think are smart, like yourself, like Rich, you know, Republicans who believe in science. And you have this guy who is a demagogue, who's been a Democrat all his life. He bankrolled plenty of Democratic politicians, helped them get elected, and either people buy it or they're just willing to go along for the ride. Because by and large, when Donald Trump was president, he let main mainline conservatives do them, and he kind of stayed out of the way. It just doesn't add up to somebody on the left. And I'm not on the far left. I'm a centrist Democrat. But I could just never, and I get asked this question all the time from friends who are not in politics, who think I know something, who you know, we all know they're sorely mistaken. But it just doesn't add up to me. And I don't know. As somebody who's a student, student of conservatism in the 20th century, for sure, like how do we get there? And how do conservatives get it? Or are they just being hustled like everybody else? 
Well, I mean, um, there are a few things. I mean, one is the Republican Party is a different beast than it was even 15 years ago. Um, the Republican Party used to be roughly split between uh, white voters with college degrees and white voters without college degrees. Um, Post-financial crisis and especially post-Trump 2016, white voters with college degrees are just abandoning the Republican Party. They don't want to be part of a party with Trump. And uh, that, of course, has meant that white voters without college degrees and increasingly non-white voters without college degrees are becoming more influential in the Republican Party. That changes the Republican Party. It also changes the conservative movement that has typically allied with the Republican Party over the last uh, century to further its uh, ideological agenda, its program. Um, so, you know, uh, the party is still not sold on Trump. He, he didn't win a majority of the vote, the primary vote in 2016. Right now, you know, he has a huge lead over his closest rival, Ron DeSantis, but it's a 30 point lead with Trump in most recent polls around the 50% mark. Of course, you can also read that as saying, well, it's, that means it's about 50% that doesn't want Trump again, you know, um, at this point, people know what you're going to get, you know, and so I, I would say that it's not like everybody's going along for the ride. Um, I would say, too, that, again, when he was president, uh, there was, I think, a sense that, OK, he's made all these promises to different conservative groups. Let's see how he uh, fills, fulfills them or not. And the fact of the matter is, for the most part, he fulfilled them. And so going into Inc 2020, including like the dream of the Supreme Court for conservatives, including the Supreme Court, it, look, including getting out of the Iran deal, though it took him too long and he didn't do it in quite the right way. He did get out of it and he did order the operation that took out Qasem Soleimani, you know, um, and he did move the embassy to Jerusalem. So there's, you know, uh, for my suite of issues that I'm very interested in, he was fulfilling that. And I was always, I was also extremely interested in the Supreme Court and he fulfilled that. He made promises to the tax cutters. He filled that with the Tax Cuts, uh, tax Cut and Jobs Act 2017. Um, he made promises to the gun rights folks, and he ne he he didn't do anything to restrict gun ownership, or uh, at least he didn't do anything to really alienate them. Um, he may have made a few moves after some of the mass shootings under his watch, but um, he was in the main, you know, doing fulfilling his end of the bargain. Uh, and that came with a lot of um, uh, craziness, but he was he was living up to his side of the deal. And so going into 2020, he had really unified the party around him. Um, that said, you know, it's clear that his mismanagement of the pandemic and not even necessarily what the government was doing during the pandemic, because he led Operation Warp Speed, which produced the vaccine. But the fact that he was so... Um, kind of inconsistent in his messaging and um, you never knew what he was going to say or do coupled with kind of his performance uh, when he got COVID uh, the first, and then right before he got COVID, of course he had the, the debate, the first debate um, which was just like a total embarrassment and mess for everyone involved, uh, including Biden and the moderator. Um, I think that ended up, basically 
alienating a lot of uh, enough people that though he won 74 million votes and came pretty close to a second term, uh, he lost in the end. So the question is now facing Republicans, do they want to go through it again? And uh, at the moment, as we sit here speaking in June 2023, it seems like enough Republicans are saying, yes, we do. <laughs> the question is the question is whether that same gung-ho attitude, is, let's put up Trump again and see what we get, uh, will still hold when people actually start voting in these primaries uh, in January. Matt, we're going to close up with our famous lightning round questions. Uh, all, another way to get to know you a little better. Favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm going to show you something that the, the listeners won't be able to see it, but I'm going to pull out my Yiddish Omatic. What is that? Which I received from the, well, it's, it's a device here that I can just pull up different phrases. Is that like the, like a Yiddish Tony? Can you get a Yiddish Tony? Do you know what a Tony is? It, you, it's, you got kids. Uh, let's see. So what's your name? And these aren't the best. Actually, one of my favorite Yiddish words is shlemiel. Ah, yeah. Yeah, these are actually kind of handy. This is like if I wanted, my Yiddish omatic is saying, you know, vos machstu. Vos machstu, vos machstu. How yeah. you doing? Fregnisht. Yeah, exactly. Fregnisht. So, yeah. So these are, oh, here's, I'm exhausted. This is going to be good. Ich bin schön ausgemittert. So this is, I this use is, that this one a is lot. like I've, that. Uh, what's that ball called? Where you like used to shake the ball? The magic eight ball. Yeah, magic my daughter eight has ball. one of those. That, I, this is the Yiddish Omatic that I can use, and I keep amazing. it in my office. Amazing. Yeah, I got it from the Yiddish Book we'll Center. We need to get one. We need an official JI. All right. Next question: Favorite Jewish or Israeli food? I mean, I don't. I'm going to sound so cliche and dumb, but uh, oh, you know what? It's shakshuka. Oh, that's, that's a great. phenomenal. I could answer. have shakshuka. Phenomenal answer. That's wonderful. I could, well, answer. For, yeah. I mean, well, my original, my gut answer was just hummus, but that's stupid. But then, as I thought about it for a second, shakshuka I could have for breakfast every it's day. It's not hummus. Is there a place, by the way, to get decent shakshuka in in Washington D.C.? Uh, if there is, it doesn't come to mind. Weirdly, weirdly, I'm the coffee sure shop. There are Israeli restaurants in D.C. Yeah, there are, there are a couple. Um, uh, in fact, actually, Tate, I think offers a shakshuka you know it's a israeli owned um cafe that's has a few places in dc yeah yeah well, who is your this is this is probably i already know the answer but maybe you'll surprise me who is your favorite conservative thinker or writer living or dead living or dead oh either well i'll say the two that have been the most influential uh, to me um are uh irving crystal um and uh charles krauthammer and so oftentimes when I'm speaking to 20-year-olds, I tell them to buy a copy of Irving Kristol's book, uh, The Neoconservative Persuasion, and a copy of Krauthammer's book, Things That Matter. But they, they're, they're the two thinkers who probably are most um, influential on me. They're both uh, dead. All right. Last question. Favorite Democrat today, like favorite living Democrat who is still active and not and not dead. Well, I like I like Seth Moulton. I think he's pretty serious about national security. Um, I I like Alyssa Spanberg. If the uh, uh, I'm sorry, Abigail Spanberg and Alyssa Slotkin. Sometimes I combine them into one Democratic <laughs> Congresswoman, even though one's from Virginia, the other's from 
Michigan. They both seem to me be to be pretty responsible liberals on national security. Um, so uh, who else? Um, Jake Oshenklaus, he had a good piece on Ukraine recently. I think there are a bunch. Colin Allred is going to challenge Ted Cruz um, in uh, 2024. Um, I think he might give Ted a little bit of a race. I mean, I still expect Cruz to win, but uh, because of the changing demographics in Texas, uh, because of the fact that it's likely Trump will overshadow the election in some way, I think Colin Allred, um, and I also think Colin Allred's a talent. Uh, I think he could do pretty well. Matthew Cottonetti, thank you so much for joining the JI Podcast. It's been great having you. Thank you both. It was fun. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.